All right, everybody, we have made it to April. It is Monday, April 3rd. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, how are you doing on this Monday morning? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Uh, a very fun weekend. How was yours? It was good. We did a whole binge on Saturday of uh, Daisy Jones and the Six over on Amazon Prime, which I've heard from many of you is a, was a great book, though we jumped straight into the TV series, with all the original music, which was phenomenal. Yeah, that's right. The book is by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who wrote the book that I'm reading for my book club. And I heard from a lot of people who said uh, she's one of their favorite authors and recommended some of her other books. So I can't wait to tackle those. That show is a, about a band in the 70s, I believe. I happened to see an 80s cover band on Saturday night called Jesse's Girl, uh, and they were awesome. It was so much fun. Love a good cover band. Actually, I think that was one of the first dates I went on with... Uh... Alex, when we just began dating, we actually went to go see a 90s cover band. There is nothing I like better than a 90s cover band. But the funny thing is, I was telling my husband and the people that we were with, I was like, you know, I don't love 80s music. And then apparently I do, because I was front and center <laughs> having the best time. And on the way home, they were like, uh, I think you do like 80s music. <laughs> you were kind of a groupie. Just to put a pin on things, Daisy Jones is based on a 70s band. And it has like, some connections to Fleetwood Mac, you know, several men, a couple women, they're dating each other, etc. But they do a very good job of taking you back to that era and what it was like. Even the casting was phenomenal. Okay, Mosh, I know what I'll be watching later tonight after I put my kids to sleep. Uh, but let's get to some headlines, shall we? The indictment of Donald Trump, what to expect this week as he faces a judge. Bad news for any Americans planning to retire and who isn't. The Social Security Retirement Fund now projected to run out of money even sooner than expected. Tornado season is in full swing and showing no mercy. Pope Francis is out of the hospital in time to lead a Palm Sunday service. When asked how he's doing, he joked, I'm still alive. That pontiff, quite a sense of humor. Okay, so we still don't know the exact origin of COVID, but there's new concern about the number of labs around the world conducting potentially risky scientific research. And then there were four. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson officially enters the 2024 presidential race. And March Madness is drawing to a close. On the women's side, history was made in the championship game, and the men will play tonight. Plus, Mosh has on this day in history. A big day for what some of us remember as the Zach Morris cell phone, Jill, uh, as well as the capture of the Unabomber back in the 90s. Dare I say he was another Michigan alum. Ted Kaczynski or <laughs> yes. Mark Paul Gossler? <laughs> Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> I'd love to claim Zach Morris, but I can't. All right, let's start with the legal and political story that is set to dominate the week. The Trump indictment. Later today, former President Trump is set to fly from Florida to New York ahead of his arraignment on Tuesday, where he is expected to voluntarily surrender to authorities. Trump is facing a felony indictment reportedly on more than 30 counts related to falsification of records to cover up a hush money payment to an adult film actress. The indictment remains sealed, and the specific charges are not immediately known, but are reported to contain at least one felony count which could have prison time attached. 
When Trump turns himself in tomorrow, he'll be booked, most likely like anyone else facing charges, mugshot, fingerprinting and all. He is not expected, though, to be put in handcuffs. He'll have Secret Service protection and will almost certainly be released that same day after facing a short hearing with the judge after 2 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday. His indictment came after a grand jury investigated hush money paid by him during the 2016 presidential campaign to silence allegations of an extramarital sexual encounter. The investigation dug into six-figure payments made to porn star Stormy Daniels and former Playboy model Karen McDougal. Both claimed to have had sexual encounters with the marriage Trump years before he got into politics. He denies having sex with either of them. The indictment indicates that the grand jury found that there was enough evidence that he may have committed a crime and believed that it should be sent to trial. Right. The grand jury, not a conviction. Just uh, he's done enough here where we think he deserves an indictment. So now it'll be up to a judge and potentially jury to determine that. One of the Trump attorneys, his name is Joe Takapina. He's doing a lot of television lately, said in interviews that they would be very aggressively challenging the legal validity of the grand jury indictment. Trump himself on his social media platform has been complaining that the judge expected to handle the case. That's Juan Manuel Merchant, quote, hates me, according to Trump. Judge Merchant, we should note, oversaw the recent case that found the Trump Corporation guilty of tax fraud and sent Trump's former top financial official, Alan Weisselberg, to jail. So he's now assigned to this case. He's very familiar with the intricacies of the Trump Corporation and some previous cases. It is TBD whether he will manage the rest of the case, but he will be handling the main arraignment on Tuesday. Now, for their part, the Trump campaign says they are energized by this indictment. They believe it has brought more energy and a boost uh, amongst Republicans, especially who feel that the president is being given a, a raw deal here. The Trump campaign claims that they fundraised $4 million in just the first 24 hours after the indictment was announced, and then another million on top of that. Uh, 24 hours later. A quarter of the donors, they say, have never donated to Trump before. So if you add that all up, about $5 million raised this weekend alone by the Trump campaign. Now, one thing we'll be watching is just the theater of this all, the security, the protests, etc. tomorrow in lower Manhattan. And by the way, if you're a New Yorker, avoid the lower part of Manhattan probably for the next 48 hours. It's set to be a bit chaotic. On Friday, the Secret Service, along with the NYPD, toured the courthouse to meet about security plans and go through how they're going to manage this. Since no former president has ever been charged with a crime, there's no rule book here on how to book Trump, how to deal with him as a defendant. As you noted, Jill, we expect him to be fingerprinted. We expect him to have a mugshot. The question is, will that mugshot be released? New York law actually discourages a mugshot from being released. It's unclear who has an incentive here. In some cases, Trump might want the mugshot released as a fundraising tactic, as an opportunity to sell his mugshot literally on mugs, on T-shirts, etc. at campaign rallies. So there's a lot still up in the air here over these next 24, 48 hours. And again, a lot of it just has to do with the fact that we've never seen this type of situation before. Meanwhile, we did learn late Sunday that in a separate investigation into Trump, the Justice Department and FBI investigators have amassed fresh evidence pointing to possible obstruction by the former president in the investigation into hundreds of top secret documents found at Mar-a-Lago. According to The Washington Post, the additional evidence comes as investigators have used emails and text messages 
from a former Trump aide to help understand key moments last year. Investigators have gathered new and significant evidence that after the subpoena was delivered, Trump personally looked through the contents of some of the boxes of documents in his home, apparently out of a desire to keep certain top secret documents in his possession. Yeah, so this is a remarkable uh, breaking news alert from The Washington Post on Sunday. And just keeping tabs here, everybody. So there is the Stormy Daniels uh, hush money case related to falsifying documents, right? That's the one he's already been indicted on. Then you have two investigations coming out of Washington, the two federal investigations that the special counsel is conducting, one into that classified documents and one into January 6th and uh, the riots that unfolded and Trump's potential role in them. Then separately, there's a Georgia case we've discussed on this podcast where he could be seeing an indictment there in the coming weeks. That's related to Trump intervening in the election count and trying to overturn the election in Georgia. So those are the four main cases we're watching. This, of course, is the classified records case. And this is a case where, you know, as we know, classified records turned up at Biden's house, turned up at Pence's house. But what makes this investigation based on this reporting unique is that it's not just about the records that were found and the files that were found at Mar-a-Lago. The issue here is potential obstruction of justice charges. It's not that he had the documents. It's that he was literally trying to keep the documents from the government in an effort here to obstruct justice. And that's a key distinction here, a difference between the Biden case, the Pence case, and the Trump case. The key element in most obstruction cases is intent, because to bring such a charge, you have to show that whatever actions were taken were done to hinder or block the investigation. So in the Trump case, prosecutors and federal agents are collecting evidence here that points to the motivation for Trump's actions. According to the Post, investigators have already amassed evidence indicating that Trump told others to mislead the government before the subpoena came down to search Mar-a-Lago. It appears he was trying to keep documents from the National Archives and the Justice Department. And prosecutors have also collected evidence that Trump ignored requests from multiple advisors to return the documents to the archives over the period of a year. He apparently was going to other advisors and other lawyers, uh, asking them to release false statements, claiming he had returned all the documents. Many had told him that this was legally precarious territory. This might be getting to illegality. And that's, again, where this classified records case appears to be escalating here into a potential obstruction of justice case. And so this is one of the other cases we'll be watching, in addition to, of course, all the theater in New York this week. Moshe, it is times like these uh, that I am very happy that I'm not in Manhattan at the moment. Um, I used to live in Midtown East. And when the General Assembly at the U.N. would meet, it was just gridlock up there. So I imagine that that's what it's going to be like downtown. But Moj, back to the case, from what I could tell, it sounds like this is not a slam dunk against Trump in any way. Yeah, even liberal legal analysts are saying that this could be a stretch here in terms of the indictment. Again, there was clearly falsification of records here. That's a misdemeanor. Uh, There's a five-year statute of limitations in New York on that. It's now been seven years. So the DA is going to have to argue that because Trump was president at the time, they couldn't pursue it. They'll still have to explain why this should go beyond the statute of limitations. Then there's the hump they have to get over, which is this is a state misdemeanor to get around a federal felony crime that the Federal Election Commission didn't even pursue against Trump in terms of falsification of documents here. So there are multiple legal obstacles here that DA Alvin Bragg will have to overcome with the judge to uh, ensure that the case even moves forward and then convince a jury that crimes were committed here. They have talked about more than 30 counts that the former president is currently facing. All those counts probably related to specific documents 
related to the hush money payment and reclassifying it as a legal payment. And then the other thing is they have to prove, Jill, that Donald Trump knew he was doing something illegal, that he knew that they were falsifying documents. And he is clearly going to be able to argue here, I don't know what my lawyers were up to. I was just doing what my lawyers said. So there's a lot of intricacies to this. There's a lot of complexity to this. And as we noted earlier, some of these other cases, the Georgia election case or the case we just discussed in D.C. related to classified documents, appear to be much more serious, much more clear cut than this New York case. So it remains to be seen how far this goes. No matter what you think, it will be good political theater. Oh, and in our favorite statement of the last few years, Jill, it will be unprecedented. We live in, un- <laughs> we live in unprecedented times. I'd like just a normal day because that would be unprecedented. We, we were actually talking about making Mo News merch that just says, how about some precedented times? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> All right, moving on. The Social Security Retirement Fund could run out of money in 10 years. Yay. One year earlier than previously projected. This is according to a new government report out on Friday. The Social Security program is expected to run short of cash to pay promised benefits in 2033, while the Medicare trust fund will run out of funds by 2031. This is according to some new forecasts issued by trustees of both programs. Social Security benefits for retirees and others are primarily paid for through payroll taxes on current workers and are supplemented by a trust fund. Benefits paid out by the program have exceeded the amount of money coming in since 2021, unless changes are made before then to shore up the program. 66 million Social Security recipients would see their benefits cut by about 23 to 25% within a decade. Meanwhile, the Medicare trust fund, which supplements payments to hospitals and nursing homes, is also running out of cash. That could result in an 11% pay cut to healthcare providers unless changes are made by 2031. So these warnings have been coming for years, if not decades. Some of you might recall in the 2000 presidential race, Al Gore versus George W. Bush. This was a huge debate topic. And Al Gore, famously at the time, was talking about creating a social security lockbox, uh, as in money that could go in that can't be used for anything else. So by the way, we should know that lockbox never created. Of course, Al Gore never became president. If memes were around in the year 2000, lockboxes and hanging chads would certainly uh, have been meme worthy. Absolutely. And though we've gotten beyond the hanging chads, the lockbox certainly necessary now as we talk 23 years later and you see these headlines. So the future of the program here has emerged as a contentious issue for years. No one's been willing to talk about serious solutions here because the political ramifications of this. Most recently, President Biden, you might remember this at the State of the Union, was accusing Republican lawmakers of wanting to slash funding for Medicare and Social Security. Republicans pushed back on that assertion, saying they don't want to cut funding for either entitlement program. Though we should note there have been a handful of Republicans that have opened up the discussion about potentially cutting benefits as we face this cliff. Right. The Republican Study Committee, which represents the largest group of House Republicans, has previously called for raising the retirement age to 70 for younger workers and trimming auxiliary benefits for high income earners. Take that, France. Right. The French right now are uh, losing it over raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. Here, we're already at 67 to a certain extent in terms of full benefits and looking at 70. And when you talk about how to deal with this, Jill, you basically have four options as we have boomers retire boomers, 
being our largest generation ever, uh, boomers living longer than ever. So they're going to retirement and then they're spending decades in retirement. And there are not enough younger workers to pay into the system to ensure those benefits continue. And keep in mind, our federal budget every year is about $6 trillion the American government spends. Two trillion of that, a third of that alone, Jill, is just for Social Security and Medicare benefits. And that continues to increase. So, you know, when you talk about budget cuts, et cetera, and the government, the government literally is locked in on uh, a third. And then you add in some other stuff. The majority of the money spent by the government every year is mandatory expenses. So here are the potential solutions. You can raise the retirement age. Eh, most people don't want to do that. That's not going to be a winner for you when you run for election. Two, cut benefits. Eh, that's not going to win you any <laughs> votes either. And this is one of the reasons why no one's wanted to have this conversation, right? Three, reallocate from other budgets. The only one where we really have some real money is military and defense. And no politician wants to run for re-election saying, we cut money from the military. We cut, you know, we're weak on defense. So that's one, raise retirement age. Two, cut benefits. Three, reallocate money from other budgets, of which there is little money unless you're talking about defense. So finally, solution number four, raise revenue, right? You need more money to come in to pay more money out. How do we raise money in the government? Taxes. So what are your options? Corporate taxes are at a record low. Uh, Democrats have talked about raising taxes on high earners. The payroll tax cap stands at 160 grand, meaning if you make more than 160 grand a year, you don't pay anything addition above that in terms of payroll taxes you're exempt. So there's talk about lifting that exemption or taking that up much higher. So if you're making more than, more than 160 grand, you continue to pay a payroll tax. And there's also an option here where investment and business income are exempt from the social security tax. So there's talk about lifting that. Biden has proposed raising Medicare taxes from 3.8% to 5% for anyone who makes more than 400 grand a year. Uh, Republicans are against that and against everything else I mentioned in terms of taxes because Republicans very much against tax increases. So no one wants to talk about raising the retirement age. No one wants to take money away from defense. And no Republicans want to talk about raising taxes. And so this is where we find ourselves in 2023, with 10 years to go on Social Security before serious cuts need to happen. And so somebody, some adults in the room need to get together to figure this out without finger pointing, right? Where both parties hold hands here and jump in together and say, America, we created a system during the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. Since then, lifespans have increased. Since then, things have changed. So nearly 90 years later, we have to take a new look at this system again. And that's where we are. Sounds promising. Not. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about Congress is they are the ultimate procrastinators. Keep in mind, in a few months, we're going to hit the debt ceiling, Jill, and they're, they're not making progress on that. And this is like 10 years away. It's sort of like climate change. You know, like when things feel so far off in the distance, there's no sense of urgency to deal with them. All right, Jill, we have a lot more to get to. We got uh, final four results. We got a new presidential candidate getting into the field. And we have a concerning report in regards to biohazard level four labs, like the lab in Wuhan, and how there's more of them popping up around the world. Oh, good, good, good. Can't wait. But first, we want to thank some of our advertisers this week. I'm going to start with Magic Spoon Cereal. We'll be doing On This Day a little bit later in this podcast. And so we talk nostalgia often on this show. Magic Spoon Cereal has joined us as a partner, and they've replicated some of your favorite flavors from your youth in a more wholesome way. They have a new variety pack that includes peanut butter, frosty, cocoa, and fruity flavors. It allows you to get your breakfast cereal nostalgia on in a low-carb way. The great thing is they're gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, 
and sugar-free. There's a special deal right now for the Mo News community. You can head over to magicspoon.com slash monews to grab a variety pack and try it today. The promo code, again, is monews at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is actually so confident in their product, it is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like Magic Spoon cereal for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, again, you can get that next delicious bowl of high-protein cereal over at magicspoon.com slash monews. Use the code monews for $5 off. Now to Athletic Greens. I've been drinking their AG1 supplement in the mornings, the Athletic Greens AG1 powder. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. Easy, quick, and lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Time now for the speed read from NPR. A daunting recovery begins in the South and Midwest after tornadoes kill at least 29 people. Residents in nearly a dozen states across the Midwest and the South on Sunday raced to assess the destruction wreaked by storms that dropped dozens of tornadoes and killed at least 29 people. On Friday, storms tore a path through the Arkansas capital of Little Rock. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders had already declared a state of emergency and activated the National Guard. At least five people were killed in her state. The dead also included at least nine in one Tennessee county, five in Indiana and four in Illinois, where storms collapsed the roof of a packed concert venue. Other deaths from that storm that hit Friday night into Saturday were reported in Alabama and Mississippi. Jill, it's actually a miracle we didn't see a catastrophic number of deaths at that concert venue you mentioned in Illinois. The governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, traveled there on Sunday to the town of Belvedere to visit the Apollo Theater. It partially collapsed as about 260 people were attending a heavy metal concert inside. Unfortunately, a 50-year-old man who was pulled from the rubble later died. But most were able to escape without injury. Tennessee was the hardest hit state. At least 10 people were killed there, including three in Memphis. There were others killed in rural McNary County, according to a local mayor who said that the area was actually hit by two back-to-back tornadoes on Friday into Saturday. The governor of Tennessee said it capped off the worst week of his time as governor, coming, of course, just a few days after the Nashville school shooting. As of Sunday afternoon, more than 300,000 households across America in these storm-struck regions were still without power. That included nearly 100,000 in Pennsylvania and more than 50,000 in Ohio. And most, there were also confirmed tornadoes in Delaware and New Jersey. Uh, New York was under a tornado watch as well on Saturday night. From the New York Times, Pope Francis returned to the Vatican on Saturday morning after a three-day hospital stay during which he was treated for bronchitis, raising new concerns about the health of the 86-year-old pontiff who is missing part of one lung. Asked how he was feeling Saturday, Francis replied, still alive, you know. Good to see, uh, Moshe, that he still has a good sense of humor. The return to the Vatican comes as Holy Week has begun with Good Friday and Easter in the coming days. 
During his time in the hospital, he visited young cancer patients. He said it is the best thing when you're a priest. He also praised the work of the medical staff. He said you have to be heroic to work in a hospital and you need tenderness, which I totally agree with. I was in the hospital, of course, after I had both of my children and just the nurses and the way that they take care of you. It's incredible. The Pope, a big advocate for a good bedside manner there. It was great to see him out and about on Sunday for Palm Sunday Mass in St. Peter's Square. Uh, He told the crowd on Sunday, I thank you for your participation and for your prayers, which intensified during these past days. Thank you, he said to about 30,000 people out there. Francis has been very forthcoming about his mortality, uh, Jill, even as the Vatican typically remains pretty tight-lipped about his health issues. He often speaks to reporters uh, when he does international trips on the uh, papal plane. And in 2014, just after taking over as Pope, he said, quote, I know this will last a short time, two or three years, and then to the house of the father, he said, referring to God. In 2015, he said, maybe I'll only be Pope for five more years. Of course, we're now in 2023. He, he has said that he would consider resigning, similar to his predecessor, Benedict XVI, if failing health made it impossible for him to keep running the Roman Catholic Church. Remember, Benedict resigned. He was the first pope to resign in about 500 plus years instead of dying in the role. And appears Francis is open to that possibility, again, if he feels he can't continue to fulfill his duties. From Bloomberg News, the number of high containment labs around the world conducting potentially risky scientific research is surging despite a lack of global agreement on how to make sure that they're safe. There are now 69 so-called biosafety level four or BSL-4 facilities designed to study dangerous infectious pathogens in operation, under construction, or planned worldwide. Now, this is according to Global Biolabs. It's a tracking project run out of King's College London and George Mason University. Compare that to 25 of those labs just a decade ago. So these are the labs in which workers wear moon suits and handle deadly viruses and organisms monitored by highly sophisticated security systems. Scientific safety has reemerged as a high-stakes global issue in the weeks since the U.S. Department of Energy suggested that it had intelligence showing a lab leak was the most likely origin of COVID-19. Health scares from the 2001 anthrax attacks to outbreaks of SARS, Ebola, and Zika have prompted numerous countries to pour enormous amounts of money into building these types of labs. They can now be found in more than 25 countries. They are frequently located in cities where a loose virus or harmful organism could potentially spread quickly. Mosh, what could possibly go wrong? We should totally locate labs studying the worst diseases on Earth in highly populated (laughs) areas for the convenience of the scientists. So keep in mind, Jill, I used to actually work down the hall from a BSL-3 level lab at George Washington University where they studied things like anthrax. And so you actually have four levels of labs starting with BSL-1. So BSL-1, they're studying like E. coli. BSL-2, they're studying things like hepatitis B, HIV, salmonella. Then you get to BSL level three, and that's where you have things like yellow fever, West Nile virus, etc. Then BSL level four, what you're talking about is Ebola, Lassa fever, hemorrhagic fever, literally the worst diseases on earth that if they get out there are the most virulent. So what we're talking about here is there's more and more labs studying the worst diseases on earth. And that makes sense given what we've seen recently, and that in those labs, you can study those diseases You can predict future mutations. You can create vaccines. But 
with the more labs and the lack of international standards, that creates more risks, right? Going from 25 of these labs to 69 of these labs and not having international monitoring over them is an issue. Now, keep in mind, BSL level four labs, studying the worst diseases on earth, uh, can cost more than a billion dollars in the U.S. Maintaining them every year costs millions of dollars. So you need to have money if you're going to build them. And a dozen new facilities have been announced just since the start of the pandemic. There, a lot of them are being built right now in Asia, India, the Philippines. And there's no real tracking of these things. That's why you have this academic study that is tracking these, because the governments themselves aren't tracking that. There are no rules that all countries have to abide by. It's up to the academics and the scientists in those labs to be like, what are we working on today? Let's mess with this disease. Let's mess with this virus. With the hopes, fingers crossed, that they are doing all the security procedures to make sure that one of those diseases doesn't leak out. So in this vacuum, nations are effectively self-policing. Apparently, according to Bloomberg News, there's only one country with a maximum containment facility, Canada, that has laws governing dual-use research that can be used for good or harm. So the Canadians here have taken charge and have developed some rules for their labs. Uh, one thing, not to scare you too much, Vladimir Putin has said he wants to build 15 of these labs in Russia. He said this a few years ago. He hasn't built any of them yet, according to this report. But that's just something to keep in mind, that the international bodies, the UN, maybe when they meet next September, Jill, and, and gunk up traffic across New York, maybe they should get on top of, you know, tracking these labs. From Politico, another Republican candidate has officially entered the 2024 presidential race. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, he told ABC Sunday that he is convinced that people want leaders that appeal to the best of America and not simply appeal to our worst instincts. That is a clear dig at former President Trump. Hutchinson is the one candidate in the GOP field so far that is willing to criticize the former president. Hutchinson's a former federal prosecutor. He's now calling on Trump to withdraw from the race because of the indictment and those other investigations that we were mentioning earlier in the podcast. He says that the indictment will become too big of a sideshow, adding that the former president should focus on his defense instead of another bid for the White House. Yeah, there's a little to no shot there that Donald Trump is listening <laughs> to Asa Hutchinson with that advice. So, Jill, we now officially have four candidates in the Republican race. Hutchinson, Trump, Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. He's sort of the Andrew Yang of this bunch, sort of an outsider from the business world. We'll see what comes of uh, his campaign. And then you have several more who we anticipate will get into this race. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, the former secretary of state, uh, and several others potentially. But it is interesting that Hutchinson is the only one willing right now to criticize Trump. Even these outsiders, DeSantis, et cetera, are not really willing to get into it with the former president. And it is a risky strategy because ultimately you will need to win over nearly 50% of the party that still likes former President Trump. So Hutchinson is pursuing a risky strategy here politically, but feels it's necessary if he's going to draw a distinction. Hutchinson will be making a formal speech in Arkansas later this month with an official campaign rollout. He is 72 years old, so a few years younger than some of the other candidates in the bunch. Very conservative guy, former governor, former congressman, former U.S. attorney. He was the head of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, for a few years under Bush. Also ran border control for the first Department of Homeland Security. So pretty long resume, uh, pro-life, signed an abortion ban in his state with no exceptions for rape or incest, was an NRA task force fighting gun control push after Sandy Hook. 
So in the sort of pre-Trump Republican Party, a very conservative candidate who would typically be somebody who potentially could go all the way, but the party has shifted. And of course, Trump is the 500-pound gorilla in the race. So it'll be very interesting to see whether he can break out in any way, shape, or form. From CBS Sports, March Madness nearing a close. On the women's side, LSU beat Iowa to win its first NCAA women's title in school history. That final score was 102-85. to Jasmine Carson scored 22 points to lead the Tigers to victory. It's actually the fourth national championship for LSU coach Kim Mulkey. She won three during her time coaching Baylor University. Iowa was led by the National Player of the Year, Caitlin Clark, who had some amazing performances in the tournament. Clark helped Iowa get to Sunday's game with a record-breaking performance Friday to beat the undefeated defending champions, the University of South Carolina. Notably, we also saw the first ever all-women's officiating crew in the Final Four. All 11 refs were women. It was part of an effort to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Title IX this year. Uh, That's the civil rights law that prevents sex discrimination, including in sports. As for the men, tonight will be the national championship game between UConn and San Diego State. That's a four-seed against a five-seed. That game will be taking place tonight in Houston. The final floor has delivered on drama this weekend. Well, UConn cruised a bit in their victory over Miami over the weekend uh, to get to the championship game. The San Diego State-Florida Atlantic game came down to a last-second shot. San Diego State stunned Florida Atlantic to win 72-71 to advance to their first-ever title game. And before this season, San Diego State had never reached the Elite Eight round, and now they're in the national championship up against UConn. This will be the first championship game for the UConn Huskies since 2014. All right, now to On This Day in History on this April 3rd. 55 years ago today, at an event for Memphis sanitation workers, civil rights activist Martin Luther King delivered his last speech, what's called the Mountaintop Speech. He would be assassinated the following day on April 4th. A lot of people will point to the speech as a pretty ominous. He says in the speech, I've been to the mountaintop. I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. Then he adds, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. We'll have much more in tomorrow's On This Day on the assassination uh, and the fallout, but a key moment on this April 3rd in, in civil rights history. All right, fast forwarding a little bit to 1973, 50 years ago today, the first ever public mobile telephone call, they called it, the first cell phone call effectively, was placed on a Manhattan sidewalk by Motorola's Martin Cooper. He called Joel Engel at Bell Labs, and his first words were literally just this, Joel, I'm calling you from a real cellular telephone, a portable handheld telephone. Those phones for a while, Joel, would literally come in backpacks or have to be installed in your car and cost several thousand dollars until they started to become slightly more affordable in the late 80s, early 90s. And on this day in history, in 1996, they caught the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, arrested after a nearly 20-year manhunt. The mathematician was driven by his anarchist ideas. He sent out 16 letter bombs between 1978 and 1995 that killed three people and injured 23. They finally were able to track him down to a one-room shack in Montana, He pleaded guilty to all charges in 1998, was sentenced to multiple life terms in prison without the possibility for parole. He is now in his 25th year in prison jail, turning 81 later this year. And one more piece of technology history today. On this day in 2010, 13 years ago, the iPad was released. 
All right, a bit of pop culture before we go. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail turns 48 today. It premiered in theaters on this day in 1975. And everyone's favorite late 80s, early 90s show, Double Dare, <laughs> marks a historic moment today, Jill. On this day, 35 years ago, April 3rd, 1988, Family Double Dare premiered. My brother and I dreamed of going on Family Double Dare. I loved that show. It occurs to me, Jill, all the shows that we watched in our youth, to get on them, like there was no internet at the time. So how did people actually get on those shows back then? I'm thinking back. I Did you send a video? I don't even know what, right. Like what was the process to even Oh, be, was it like America's Funniest Home Canvas? Videos? Like at the end of the show, they like give you a PO box to like send an application to? Maybe I that was yes, it? I think something like that. Um, needless to say, we were never on the show. No one ever called us. <laughs> it never happened. Were your parents game? <laughs> yes, actually. Really? Totally. Okay. <laughs> your, I just remember a lot of slime. slime. Yes. yes. I, I don't remember much except for slime. All right, everyone. A big thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And don't forget to follow us over on Instagram. We're going to have uh, ongoing coverage over these next couple of days of the indictment and anything else that pops up in the news over at the Mo News account at Mosh at M O S H E H. And we'll have a presence outside the courthouse on Tuesday to capture the theater of it all. And tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, be sure to tune in to Mondays with Mosh. I'll be answering all your questions about that and whatever else is on your mind. All right, bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.